from Dr. John Hanna, so I hope you won't mind that I'm borrowing some of them. Uh, this happens at baptism, remission of sins, removal of original sin, and then your merit is increased by the Spirit, through the sacraments, and by faith. And then ultimately, you're imputing or uh, virtues are being credited to your account, and so that when you die, you can have justification. Uh, so justification uh, follows sanctification in this line of thinking. Uh, if you do enough good works, then you go to heaven. Here's what Thomas Aquinas said. In the beginning, uh, when you believe, you're, you're given a gratuitous infusion of grace. That's God giving you grace to believe, but then you have to cooperate with God to do the best you can with the aid of grace. And at the end of your life, you get the reward of eternal life as a just due. So you have earned your salvation and you get it as a reward, as a payment to what uh, you are owed. And so what, what we're seeing is that when we cooperate with God, uh, then, we get the, um, th then we get the reward. Well, Protestants have unfairly accused Catholics of believing in salvation by works. And that's not 100% true. Uh, you have to have grace, first of all, as we saw in these slides. There is an infusion of grace, and then you work together with God in order to be saved by the good works that you do. But the difference between Catholics' view of grace and Protestants' view of grace is how grace is applied to your account. Uh, and so uh, the Catholics, for example, would believe that, that grace is applied to your account through the workings of the sacraments and applied by the church uh, to your account. And so to be saved, you must first repent of sin, then you get grace, and then you have to build up a treasury of merit that you draw on when your time comes to die. You have this treasury of merit that you can say, uh, here it is, uh, this is why I've earned my salvation by cooperating with God through the good works because I have this treasury of merit. And the treasury of merit consists of the good works that you do, the sacraments that you make and take, uh, and the, uh, the attending of the mass every week. And so this is where we get the, the idea of God helps those who help themselves. Have you ever heard that phrase before? That is not a biblical phrase, right? Uh, but this is where we get it from. Uh, commit doing the sacraments, doing the things that, that God will help you if you do the things that help God uh, help you. Uh, and so that's, that's where that comes from. Uh, so I think of the treasury of merit like a piggy bank. Uh, for every mass you attend, for every good work that you do, every sacrament that you make, uh, you put a quarter in your piggy bank. But then every time you sin, you have to withdraw a quarter from your piggy bank. And you're hoping that at the end of your life, there's still money left in your piggy bank. And if there is, you're saved. And if there isn't, uh, you still can be saved, but you first have to do a period of time in purgatory to pay for those sins that were not paid for during your lifetime. Uh, so Catholics believe in purgatory, uh, and, and there's a place that you go that you can pay off the sins that you did not pay for uh, in your own lifetime. Uh, it's not hell. Uh, people who don't believe have never had that infusion of grace. They go to hell. Uh, people who believe in, in Jesus but haven't paid for their sins, they get purgatory to, 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 to be cleansed for their lifetime. Well, the Catholic Church rec uh, recognized seven sacraments. There's baptism, there is confirmation, Eucharist, penance, holy unction, uh, orders or ordination, and matrimony. Um, each sacrament adds to your treasury of merit. Uh, and baptism is the first one that you, that you would do, and that uh, happens at the beginning of your life as early as possible. And what that does in, in Catholic teaching is that it removes original sin. 
So you're born with original sin, but when you're baptized, original sin is removed. And so now you're this clean slate. You're perfectly innocent. And that's why they would baptize babies as soon as possible after they were born so that if they died before, uh, if they died in infancy, uh, they would go to heaven. If, if they died before they were baptized, it was believed that they would go to hell. And so they, they baptized them as soon as they could. Um, but just because baptism, baptism removes original sin, we know that we're going to sin. And so you have these other uh, sacraments that we make that can uh, restore uh, our state of innocence. And, and, and one of them was confirmation, where you just go to the priest uh, at a point in time and you just confirm your faith. You confirm that you believe uh, in the teachings of the church and that adds merit uh, to your account. Uh, another one was penance. Uh, penance was a big deal uh, for the Catholic Church, and what happens is that you confess your sin to a priest, and then you're given works to do to pay for the penalty of that sin, uh, both as discipline and as payment for, for, what you, uh, for what you have done. And the whole concept of penance uh, comes out of uh, Jerome's translation of the, Latin, uh, of the Bible into what is the Latin Vulgate. And the Latin Vulgate is what the Catholic Church used uh, for a thousand years for their theology. Uh, and, and so he translated the word metanoia as do penance, uh, an outward work that you do. But the word metanoia actually means an inward change, a change of your mind, that you accept Jesus as your Savior. You don't do anything except to change your mind. But the theology uh, was such that you had to go and do things. And, and so the penance is doing things that you would do uh, to receive forgiveness for your sin, to receive absolution for your sin. And these works were required. If you didn't do those works in your lifetime, then you're going to have to do those works in purgatory. And so this system of indulgences came out of this, this concept of penance. An indulgence is a certificate that you can buy uh, from the priesthood, which would essentially pay for some of the, some of the work that you would have to do uh, in purgatory or before you died. So if you were told you have to do you know, 15 things before you could go to heaven, you could buy an indulgence to pay for 10 of those things, and you only have to do the five. And so uh, that's like a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? And you can see how that system would be ripe for abuse. Well, it became possible over time that not only uh, could, you, could you buy an indulgence to, to take care of your own uh, sin and, and the own, your own discipline that you would have to do, but it also came about that you would be able uh, to draw on other people's treasury of merit to pay for your own sin. So, for example, uh, Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, and the apostles did great works too. And these, these all did way more than was necessary for them to attain heaven themselves. So the excess, the, 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 the treasury of merit that they didn't need, gets deposited into this grand treasury of merit that the church gets to draw on and apply to your account as it deems uh, necessary. I see some head shaking out there. It's just blood boiling. I know. I understand. I understand. I understand. Uh, some of us have come out of the Catholic Church and have been taught this uh, some of our, um, for a lot of our lives. And uh, yeah, when you know the gospel, uh, this, this stuff can, can be angering. Uh, so I, I get that. Uh, the apostles, uh, they had this treasury of merit. The church would draw on this treasury of merit. And so this is what it would look like. You would have Jesus. Uh, he dies on the cross. And all the saints and the good works that they do, they, get, they deposit all that into their treasury of merit. 
the church gets to take the treasury of merit and then give it to people uh, as they're doing acts of good work and, and paying money and doing whatever it is that, that the church would ask them to do. And then finally, uh, the belief spread that, that the living could purchase indulgences for people who were already dead. And so if your mother is in heaven, your poor, or, I mean in purgatory, your poor mom, wouldn't you pay uh, $50, $1,000 to buy your mom a thousand years uh, off of her purgatory sentence? And you can certainly see how that system is ripe for abuse. And that's one of the things that Martin Luther got so bent out of shape about. And, and we'll see that uh, next week. Well, communion was another sacrament that they would make. And communion is different than the way we practice communion today. It adds to the treasury of merit, of course. You do it every week. But in the 12th and 13th centuries, this doctrine of transubstantiation was developed. And transubstantiation means that when we take the elements, like we're going to do today, the priest raises up the bread and the, and the wine, and they become the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, so when you take the elements, you're actually taking the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so what they're doing is they are reenacting the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross every week. He didn't die once and for all like we believe. He, he dies every week on the, on the altar of the Catholic Church uh, to continue uh, to offer this sacrifice to God. Of course, Protestants don't believe that. The Bible tells us very clearly that he died once. Uh, and that's all that he had to die. But, but Catholics don't, don't believe that. That's why they have an altar, so they can do the sacrifice every week. Uh, we believe that when Christ died, he paid our sin debt in full. Uh, Jesus paid it all. There's nothing else that we have to do except to believe in him. Uh, and Jesus certainly doesn't die again every Sunday on the altar. Well, only the priests got the wine because they didn't want the lay people spilling the actual blood of Christ on the floor. So the priests withheld the wine from, uh, from the people, uh, and they took it themselves. Uh, they also they, they changed communion from, a, from bread to this little you know, bread wafer. If you've ever been in a Catholic church, they hand you out a little uh, a circular about the size of a quarter, a little wafer, uh, and they give that to you because they didn't want the crumbs, the actual body of Jesus, falling on the floor. Uh, so that's, that's why they do it like that in the Catholic church. So that's how they treated communion. Marriage was a sacrament because it, it helped people to avoid sexual sin. You got married so that you wouldn't lust and you wouldn't uh, have uh, sex outside of marriage, so that became a sacrament. Ordination into the ministry was a sacrament because you were going to dedicate your life to God. And finally, uh, holy unction—I'm sorry, holy, uh, yeah, holy unction—was a sacrament because what was happening was that the priest prays over you as you are about to die. Uh, and so you're receiving this final prayer, and that is the final addition to your treasury of merit before you die. And, and so you're about to die, and you're praying at this point that your treasury of merit is enough. Well, what do all these sacraments have in common? What they all have in common is that the priest has to do it for you, right? You don't do anything yourself. You need a priest. The priest does this work for you. Uh, and he's the one who is going to dispense this grace as a means to salvation for you. And so the priests had great power as a result of this. And as often happens, great power often corrupts greatly. And so uh, the priesthood became corrupt over time. And, and they began this practice called simony where they would buy church offices. And the more church offices you have, the more power you have. And a priest would buy as many church offices as he could afford. 
And once in power, they would begin uh, this practice of nepotism, where they would give church offices to their family members. And so you have uh, little family empires now controlling the church. Uh, priests couldn't get married, but you could pay a fee and you could keep a concubine on the side if you paid enough money uh, into the church. And, and priests could not be tried in civil court. Only uh, the church could try the priests. And of course, the priests uh, all looked out for each other, so nobody ever got convicted. Uh, that was a problem in the, in the church, was that there was no, no justice. And so all of these things uh, just resulted in increasing separation and distance between the priesthood and the people. Uh, on top of this, most people were illiterate uh, at this time. Most people didn't have Bibles in their own language, right? There was only the Latin Vulgate, and the Mass was said in Latin, which nobody spoke anymore. So uh, you, just, you have complete separation from the priest and the people. Uh, and so the people, they were required to trust the priesthood for their standard of morality uh, and for helping them get to, to heaven. But these, the people didn't see it in the priesthood. It was corrupt and it was immoral, and they were doing all kinds of things that, that they ought not to do. And so everyone understood that that reform was needed in the church. They just couldn't agree on how they were going to reform the church. And so Innocent III, this guy here, was a reforming pope. He lived, or he, he reigned as, as pope from 1198 uh, to 1216. And incidentally, since we're talking about the Catholic Church, I, I ought to tell you where the papacy derives its power. Uh, they derive their power from Peter's great confession uh, in Matthew chapter 16. So... Uh, Jesus asks, who do they say I am and who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, I say to you also that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this is where the popes derive their authority from. They take it from this verse. Of course, Protestants don't believe that Jesus established any papal office uh, with this verse, and they certainly don't believe that Peter holds the gates of heaven, uh, the keys to heaven, uh, with this verse. Uh, I can't do a sermon on this. I wish I could. We'll do that another time. Uh, but you have to take my word for it at this time. That, that's what the Catholics believed and still believe to this day. That's where the, the power of the priesthood comes from. Well, up to this time, kings and popes enjoyed relatively equal authority, uh, equal power, but, but Innocent set out to change those things. Uh, he claimed, this is what Innocent said of himself and the papacy, the pope is set between God and man, lower than God, but higher than man, who shall judge all and be judged by no one. So uh, a bit of an ego problem perhaps for, for Innocent III. He, he thought very highly of himself and he thought very highly of his office. Uh, but he was trying to do reform. Uh, he, he, he thought that, that there was need of reform. He just thought he was the only guy who could do it. And so that this is where his authority came from. Uh, he exerted his authority over kings, uh, and he made transubstantiation the official doctrine of the church. And he required that uh, people had to attend or, uh, or go to confession at least once a year, uh, or else they would, they would uh, be in trouble with the priesthood. And of course, all of this increased the power of the papacy and the power of the priesthood because people became more and more dependent on the priesthood for their means of salvation. And the papacy enforced its power through fear. 
Uh, the papacy had a couple of weapons at its disposal. One was excommunication. Uh, if you're doing something that uh, I don't like as the Pope, I can just excommunicate you. I can say that you no longer get the sacraments and therefore you no longer get the means that you need to be saved. So you're doomed to hell essentially by this uh, verdict of, of excommunication by the Pope. The other thing that a Pope has, which is even more powerful, is called an interdict. So if you are a king of a, of a nation and, and you do something that the Pope doesn't like, the Pope can actually issue this interdict against the entire nation, not allowing mass to be done in the whole country, sacraments to be given or anything else, so the whole nation becomes under uh, under this interdict because of the actions of the ruler. And so that is a very powerful tool as well that, that the Pope had. Uh, and so uh, Innocent was trying to reform the papacy, but what was happening was that the priests became more powerful and therefore more corrupt. It reminds me of an old Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, topic change, called uh, Total Recall. I don't know if any of you have ever seen this movie, but it's set on Mars. Uh, and, and the villain gets control of the breathable air supply that people need to live on Mars. And he will only dispense oxygen uh, at his will and according to certain conditions. And of course, uh, Arnold comes on the scene, kills the bad guy, everybody gets uh, breathable oxygen again. But this is much like what was going on in the Catholic Church, dispensing the means of grace uh, at their will and at their pleasure. Uh, so after Innocent III, after he died, uh, the papacy fell into a period of decline. Uh, and this guy, Boniface VIII, was the pope from 1294 to 1303. And he tried to expand the power of the papacy in, in the tradition of Innocent III. But a few things happened in the intervening 100 years. Uh, universities began to be built and, and people became a little bit more literate and they learned to read for themselves and they did not want to be dependent on the pope to tell them uh, where truth could be found. And the other thing that was happening was that there was, there was a rise of nation states. Uh, power was becoming more centralized uh, in certain countries like France and like England. We, we had kings that were beginning to arise and they wanted to centralize their own power. And they certainly didn't want uh, some pope over in Italy telling them uh, what they could do. And so uh, what happened was, was that Boniface found himself in a power struggle with King Philip of France. Uh, that began a period of about 200 years of, uh, of a weakening of the papacy that began to happen over the course of, of several events. And the first thing that happened was something that Luther himself called the Babylonian captivity of the church. And so uh, what was happening was that King Philip was trying to centralize his power. And what he wanted to do to do that was to raise money, raise taxes to, to make his government stronger. And so he issued a tax against the priesthood, uh, which had never been done before. And, and uh, Boniface issued this uh, papal decree that said, hold on, nobody can tax the priesthood without papal consent. And of course, he's not going to give that consent because if there's going to be any taxing, the money's going to go to Rome. It's not going to this particular country uh, that, that we would like to, to have uh, money from. Well, Philip said, oh yeah? And he imposed a tax on them anyway, uh, and he shut down exports to Italy. Now, the Italians were not going to live without fine French wine and cheese, and so they found themselves in a big bind. Uh, and Boniface eventually had to back down. Uh, and so uh, he lost that battle. But then another battle came up. Prince Philip, uh, there was an attempt on his life by a French priest. And Philip caught the guy and he threw him in jail and he said, you will stay in jail until I'm good and ready to release you. And Boniface said, 
Uh, you do not have the power to jail a priest without my permission. And King Philip said, oh yeah? And he sent troops to Italy and he arrested Boniface. So uh, that'll show you. Uh, so he arrested Boniface and threw him in jail uh, for a period of time. He eventually released Boniface, but Boniface by that time was on his deathbed. Uh, and so he eventually died soon thereafter. Well, King Philip then himself appointed a French pope. Uh, and he appointed this guy uh, called Clement V. Uh, and the papacy then was moved by Clement V to France. Uh, so it moved from Rome to Avignon, France, uh, so a little bit westward, Rome over to Avignon. And the, the, the papacy actually resided outside of Rome for 70 years or so under seven different popes. And the popes were pawns of the French government at that point in time. And so for a person trusting in the papacy, this was devastating. The, the, the papacy is supposed to be untouchable, uh, and now it's not in Rome anymore, it's in Avignon. And the other nations weren't happy about this either, because England and France were at war all the time. Uh, and so if you are England paying money into the papacy, and you know that the French kings are just taking the money out of the papacy, you're essentially funding the war uh, against yourself, as France takes the money out of the church treasury and uses it to fight against you. So that was a big problem. Well, after that 70-year period, for a whole bunch of reasons, the papacy was moved back to Rome by this guy, Pope Gregory XI, in 1377. But this led to a second major uh, problem that weakened the papacy called the Great Papal Schism. After Pope uh, Gregory XI died, the mostly French College of Cardinals went to Rome to elect a new pope. And a mob gathered outside of their, uh, of their meeting and demanded that, a, uh, that a, an Italian pope be elected. And so, uh, probably fearing for their lives, they hastily elected this Italian, Urban VI, and he became the pope. They didn't know him very well. As soon as he became the pope, he issued an edict that said, uh, you French cardinals can no longer accept gifts from lay people or from rulers. And the French cardinals were like, oh, whoa, that's a little more reform than we asked for. Uh, we would like to take uh, stipends from people. We'd like to line our own pockets. And so this is a big problem. So what do you do when you're a French co college of cardinals and you don't like the pope who you elected? You declare him the antichrist, you declare him the apostate, and you kick him out of office, right? Uh, that, that's what you do. And so that's what they did. Uh, and so they appointed this Frenchman, Clement VII, uh, as the new pope. And he uh, reestablished the papacy in Avignon, but Urban VI would not resign. He would not step down, even though he had been deposed. So now we have two popes. Uh, and that's a big problem, of course. Uh, and so you have, you have these two popes, both elected by the same college of cardinals, and you would have uh, countries lining up behind the pope that they liked best. So, uh, for example, in France, you would have people lining up behind the pope who was in Avignon. And in Rome and in other parts of the empire, you would have the popes lining up behind, uh, or the uh, people lining up behind the Roman pope. And so you have division not only uh, in the centralized states, but now along religious lines too. And so uh, that was a big problem. So to solve the problem, uh, the bishops, uh, they convened a council in a place called Pisa. And they said, uh, in a situation like this, where we have two popes, neither of them have any power over the power that bishops and councils have. And so what they did was they, they deposed those 
two existing popes and they appointed a third pope, Alexander V. Uh, he was going to be their guy now, but neither Urban VI nor Clement VII would step down, so now we have three popes. Uh, so how long will this go on? We'll see. Uh, it just keeps going on. Uh, so we have, we have a, a few of them now. Uh, they, they, they have now this, Clement VII is in Avignon, uh, Alexander V voted on in Pisa, and they have Urban VI in Rome. And so uh, you can see how confidence in the papacy would be weakened uh, through this problem. And, and they recognized it too. And so uh, something arose called the conciliar movement. Uh, conciliar is from the word council. And they decided that councils were going to have more authority than the popes. The councils were going to solve this problem. And so they met together at a place called Constance to fix the problem. And in 1417, the Council of Constance deposed all three popes, and they elected this guy, Martin V. Uh, the other three guys actually did agree to step down, so now we have one pope again, and all would seem to be right with the world, because as part of his appointment, he agreed that he was going to try to reform the church, and he was going to put in all these great uh, reforms, but none of it ever happened, and what happened was that they ended up right back where they started from, uh, he reestablished the authority of the papacy. He said councils have no authority over the popes. And so what you have is a corrupt pope uh, with a corrupt priesthood and 200 years of uh, papal, attempted papal reforms had failed. They were right back where they started. Well, it's a bleak picture, right? But during this time, uh, during these 200 years, there were people, there, there were certain men who, who tried back to the Bible movements, who, who, who recognized that the gospel had been lost, who, who knew uh, that, that salvation was not found in the church, but was found in Jesus Christ alone. And they challenged the idea that authority ran from God to Pope to priest and then to the people. Uh, and, and they read their Bibles, and they didn't find this papal authority in their Bibles. They found the Bible was authoritative in and of itself, and they found that Christ alone was sufficient for salvation. And the first guy I want to mention is Peter Waldo. He lived from 1140 to 1218, so back in, in, uh, in uh, I'm sorry, Innocent's time. And, and he hired French priests to translate the Bible into his own language. And when he read the Bible for himself, he said, I don't see any of this stuff about the papacy in my Bible. I see salvation in Christ alone. He believed in a priesthood of all believers, not just a priesthood of, of these few who were part of the, 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 uh, the uh, priesthood and the papacy. He said that all Christians were able to preach. He rejected practices that he believed to be non-biblical, like praying to saints or worshiping relics or praying for the dead. He didn't find those things in his Bible, and so he renounced those things. Well, Pope Lucius III excommunicated him, and unfortunately his movement was not able to gain very much traction. But there was another guy who followed him, John Wycliffe, who you probably have all heard of. He's famous because uh, of his translation of the Bible, and, and the Wycliffe translators still exist uh, today. He was a scholar in, in the 1300s in England, and he was actually a tutor to the royal house. Uh, he said that it, it is not true that the church is made up only of the priesthood, it's made up of all believers. And he said that, that transubstantiation is not biblical, he said that uh, we should not worship relics or pray to the dead. Uh, he said that grace is not received into a treasury of merit, which is dispensed at the goodwill of the priests. Uh, and he's most famous for his translation of the Bible uh, into English. Uh, so that's, that's what he's most known for. Uh, and so he translated the Bible into English, and, and anybody in England who could read now had the Bible. 
Uh, and so the Council of Constance convicted him as a heretic in 1417, but unfortunately for them, Wycliffe died in 1384. So what do you think they did? They went to England, they dug up his bones, they burnt them to ashes, and they scattered his, his ashes uh, into the river. And that's, that's what you do with heretics. And so that's what they did with him. Uh, the next guy who, who followed Wycliffe was John Hus. He was a reformer from Bohemia, which is now known as Czechoslovakia. And he had visited England, and he had heard Wycliffe speak uh, in the past. And so he agreed with Wycliffe in all of his teachings, and he brought those teachings into mainland Europe. Uh, and he was invited to the Council of Constance uh, to come and defend his views. And he was given what is called a safe passage, which means that you can come to the council uh, without fear that your life will be in jeopardy, and you, you can come without fear that when you return, uh, that you'll be allowed to return regardless of what you say. Well, he came to the Council of Constance, uh, and he stated his views, and they called him a heretic, and they said, we don't have to keep our promises to heretics, and they burned him at the stake. Awful, right? That's what they did. Uh, and as he was about to be burned at the stake, he said, you may cook this goose, but in 100 years, a swan will arise that you will not uh, be able to roast or boil. And the word for, um, for goose in Czech is hus. So his last name was goose. And so that's where we get our phrase, his goose is cooked. If you ever heard that phrase before, that's where it comes from, uh, the, the burning of John Hus. Uh, his followers were known as Hussites. Uh, and that'll be important next week uh, when we talk about Luther. Uh, but his death sparked an armed revolt that led to a reformed church in Bohemia 100 years before Luther's time. And 102 years after the death of uh, Hus, uh, Luther posts his 95 theses to the church door. So he was rather prophetic, wasn't he? Well, these three men began back to the Bible movements long before Luther. Luther gets the credit for starting the Reformation, but he built, he stood on the shoulders of others who went before him. Uh, they all returned to the belief that Christ alone was for, sufficient for salvation. Uh, these were courageous men, not afraid to die for what they believed, and they were considered radicals at the time. And so we're talking about the Reformation because the things that we believe and hold true uh, as uh, obvious to us were radical beliefs at the time when Luther came on the scene, and they could get you killed, and as we saw from John Hus, uh, it did. Uh, you had tension between the people who supported the papacy, people who supported councils, and then these radicals who believed in the Bible. And so these, these events all primed the pump and made it ready for Martin Luther. And here's what uh, historian Stephen Osment said about uh, the, the, the eve of the Reformation. He said, the failure of the late medieval church to provide a theology and a spirituality that could satisfy and discipline religious hearts and minds was the most important precondition of the Reformation. And so all these things that I've been talking about for the 200 years that preceded Luther uh, made this whole situation just a pile of tinder with lighter fluid all over it, ready to explode. Uh, and so that's what we're going to talk about next week. But we're studying this because I think the church is in need of reformation as much today uh, as it was back in Luther's day. And so by way of application, I wanna talk about a few reasons why. Why is reformation needed in the church today? The first thing is that there is lack of confidence in the word of God today, right? This is not a new phenomenon. This has been going on uh, forever. And so in the 15th century, uh, there was not confidence in this word, the word of God. There was authority in the papacy. Uh, and, and so the question was, was the Bible authoritative or were councils and popes authoritative? 
In today's postmodern world in which we live, uh, how many people outside of the church that we know consider this book authoritative? Not many, right? That They all depend on, on what they think and how they interpret things and the truth that, that they believe because it sounds good to them. Uh, the Bible is not authoritative. There's no such thing as absolute truth anymore. They want to determine right or wrong for themselves. They don't want you telling them that right or wrong uh, and the standards of, of that are found in here, in this book. And so even in many Christians today, uh, we've lost authoritative teaching of the Bible, right? If the Bible is taught at all, sometimes it's taught as a supplement to what Oprah or what Dr. Phil has said, right? Uh, and, and if we have problems, we, we go to some guru or some counselor or we read self-help books. We, we don't go to this anymore. That's a big problem in today's society. Uh, and so the authority of the Bible has been lost. And so uh, we need another back to the Bible movement in our society, just like Luther did in his day. The second thing, why the Reformation is needed today, as much as it was in Luther's day, is that the lack of understanding of seriousness of sin exists today, just like it did then. In those days, you could buy your way out of sin with the purchase of an indulgence. Uh, so you could sin freely, willy-nilly, and then just buy an indulgence and you could be, you could be free from the, the penance of that sin. Today, we don't even understand what sin is. We don't think anything is a sin. When you invent truth for yourself, uh, and you decide what's right or wrong, then there's no such thing as sin because you're acting in accordance with your own standards. And so sin, of course, is, is greatly uh, reduced in, in people's eyes. And, and this is all what led to uh, Luther's breakthrough because he understood the gravity of his sin. And when we talk about him next week, we'll see that he labored under the gravity of his sin. And so we just need a world that understands the gravity of sin. Uh, the reason why Jesus came was because of our sin, right? He came to pay the penalty for our sin. And if we really understood why Jesus came, uh, what he bought with his death, uh, what, he was, what he was dying for to cover our sin, I don't think we would trivialize sin uh, as much as we do anymore. And so that's the second reason why we need a reformation. And third, the cross is minimalized, if not nullified, under today's way of thinking. Uh, in the 15th century, uh, the, the cross was insufficient, right? Jesus died, but we have to make sacraments, and we have to attend Mass, and we have to do a whole bunch of things if we want to be saved. Um, and that's how we get in do our treasury of merit. We build up our treasury of merit. So Christ only secured the possibility that we might be saved. We still have to do stuff on our own. Uh, it wasn't that Christ died once for all. And this, of course, diminishes the work of the cross, and it makes the cross unnecessary. But we know the song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, crimson stain, he washed it white as snow, right? We didn't wash our own sin white as snow. He did that for us. And today many people believe in a form of universalism where all people are going to go to heaven no matter what. But if that's true, then why did Jesus come? And why did Jesus die? Uh, the cross is eliminated completely under that, that thinking. So uh, those are the questions that, that, that we need answered today. That's why we need a reformation today. And the reason why we're studying this is because Luther faced the same questions that we face today. What is truth? Where is authority found? Uh, is it in the Bible or is it in popes or council? What is salvation? How do we attain it? Uh, is it, by, is it by, the Christ, uh, by the cross alone, or is it by all the works that we do on top of that? And what is the church? Uh, is it the, pa the papacy and the priesthood, or, or are all believers part of the universal church? We need to have answers to those questions today, just like Luther did 500 years ago. 
And in the answers to those questions, as, as Luther was uncovering the answers to those questions by reading his Bible, the gospel was recovered. And next week, we'll talk about Luther specifically and, and how he recovered the gospel from these years and centuries of, of, uh, of teaching of the Catholic Church. So let's go to the Lord in prayer today and just thank him that the gospel has been recovered and that we can be saved as a result. Lord God, we do thank you. Uh, Lord, Luther stood on the, on the shoulders of great, great men before him who, who tried as hard as they could to uncover uh, what had been lost, the gospel itself. And Lord, without the gospel, there is no salvation. And we're so grateful for what Luther did and for what those who preceded him did, Lord, uh, to, to do their work in, in uncovering this gospel. Lord, your son died for our sins so that we could go to heaven. Lord, we just have to believe uh, that, that he rose from the dead for our sins uh, after having paid the penalty of his death and Lord, it, it's so simple. The gospel is so simple. And I'm just so thankful that, that you have given us ears to hear it and to understand it. And we pray for it for the rest of the world too, Lord. Help us to be instruments in the world at our new building coming in a few weeks and, and around the world, Lord, with whoever we encounter. May we share this gospel message uh, to a world who needs it desperately. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.